We've been looking at a, 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 a series in the mornings starting in early July on biblical basics, and it's really been something that I've wanted to do, and I'll, I'll, again, although I don't do a lot of topical uh, sermons, I really felt that it was probably helpful for us to look at eight or ten topics or so of things that are really basic to Christian life, and we did talk about first what is God like, and our approach on that particular message was simply to, to not really go through uh, scripture and describe God, but show the many ways in God in which God has revealed himself to us in order that we might come to know what God is like. And then we spent some time looking at what is the Bible, and again, we approached it from a little bit of a different uh, viewpoint, and we asked the question, what is the Bible, by looking at four of its attributes. Uh, we looked at the sufficiency of scripture, that it contains everything and says all that we need to know about spiritual things and to give us an understanding of the world. We talked about the fact that it was clear that it was necessary, and that it was authoritative to our lives. And then we spent a little bit of time last week, um, Pastor Gerald spoke on the question of what is prayer. And in its simply, simplest form, it's really our ability to commute with the God of heaven and earth, which is an outstanding thing in and of itself. And so this morning, we are going to be looking at this topic, what are angels, demons, and Satan? And I'm aware that as we launch into something like this, that this is not compatible with a worldview of scientific naturalism. It's not compatible with a world that only looks at the physical. And I'm aware of those who sort of look around and they say, well, talk of angels and demons and Satan, that really belongs to a primitive worldview. We've really advanced so far beyond that. And we, we now know so much about the body chemistry and about neurology and about psychology. And, and those are really the things that will give us insight into these things that maybe have been described in other ways. And so they deny the, the, the invisible. They deny the supernatural. They deny a spiritual realm. I don't share their dismissal, nor do I share their skepticism about the existence of angels and demons and Satan. And I understand that modern science has been very helpful in so many different ways, but it has its limitations. And I think we need to come to understand the limitations of the, the scientific uh, naturalism that's sort of presented as one of the primary worldviews today. It's limited to the physical, and that's part of its problem. And you can't reduce everything to the physical. You can't reduce everything to something that you can see and that you can touch. And so often their way of dealing with things that don't reduce to that is to eliminate them or to reduce them down to something that is physical. But there is so much more in the world than simply physical reality. And certainly that applies to the unseen world. Just purely naturalistic ex explanations do not account for the profusion of evil and for the depth of evil that exists in this world around us. We might understand a little bit of, of the impact of sin because of our own sinfulness of our own lives, but there is some horrific and horrendous evil that takes place all around us and we have no explanation for it. And I believe the physical uh, uh, sort of naturalistic worldview doesn't explain that, but a spiritual worldview does. I think we also re need to realize that what we have learned in the last three or hundred years or so in the Western world does not negate a history of 10 or 12,000 years of learning. You can't just wipe out what mankind has learned and what they have observed and what they have dealt with because in, in our part of the world we've come to focus on a certain aspect uh, of the, the world in which we live. 
and this whole area of demons and angels. Uh, you go to other countries like Asia or, or South America, um, some places in Africa, and they have a very clear understanding, knowledge, and awareness of the unseen world. And so just because it's not something that we're familiar with or that we promote does not mean that it does not exist. I think we need to understand that a view of a right understanding of angels and demons and Satan is very compatible with a biblical worldview. In fact, the verses that we just looked at from Mark chapter 1, we saw them. Jesus went out into the wilderness and what? He was tempted by who? Satan. And who ministered to him? Angels. And what was part of his ministry? Casting out demons and dealing with those who were oppressed by demons. And so in that one chapter alone, in those five verses, we have a glimpse of a spiritual reality. I think when we wrestle with this stuff, it gives us an understanding, first and foremost, I think, of salvation. One of the verses that I often quote here is from Colossians chapter 1.13, where it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. That really, in an essence, is the simplicity of the world. There are two kingdoms. There are two realms. There is a, a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light. And they intersect in the physical reality in which we live. And salvation is this extraordinary um, transfer from this kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the glory of the image of Christ. And so it begins even by giving us an understanding of what it means to be saved, what it means to be a child of God. It's not just a, a physical change that takes place. There's a whole spiritual transformation that takes place when one becomes a child of God. I think, secondly, it helps us understand the spiritual battle with which we fight every single day. I think if you are a child of God, and even if you're not a Christian, you understand this ongoing battle that you yourself wage between what is right and what is wrong, between overreacting and underacting, between temptations that pull you one way and temptations that pull you another way. The Bible tells us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody who he might destroy. That's in, that's in the invisible world. Sometimes, it, it, sometimes he uses physical realities, but there is this adversary that is around us that is looking to destroy us and is looking to harm us. Ephesians tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is, a, there is a devil and there is this spiritual reality that is scheming our downfall, that is scheming our hurt because he hates God. He's in rebellion against God. And so it, gives, it makes sense of these, these things that we can't make sense of on a purely physical plane. There's this spiritual battle that's raging. And, and again, Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and rulers and authorities and, and in this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you know that, that right now there's a battle being waged around us? That when you go to work, there is a battle being waged around you. At home, there is a battle being waged around you. The physical is not all that there is. And so I think when we understand these things and we wrestle with them, it helps put into place something of this battle that each of us experience 
on a daily, if not hourly, if not minute-to-minute basis. I think when we understand or begin thinking about angels and demons and Satan, and particularly demons and Satan, it gives us a perspective in some of the, the horrific evil that we see around us. There are some things that I can maybe look at an individual and I can explain it and say, well, that's because they did this and that's because they did that. But I was confronted about six or seven weeks ago with, with evil that I've never been confronted with before. And when I came home late in that evening, I was, I was thinking uh, I, and I was realizing that I had come face to face with this reality of evil that I hadn't come face to face with for a long time. And it helped me explain the words and the actions and the evil that came out from an individual. And so it helps us make sense of those, those, those expressions of evil and wickedness that we can't explain otherwise. I think it also teaches us that the unseen world is very real. You read through the Bible, and I, I wish we had like a, a number of weeks to go through this, and I, I just throw some of these out, and they might confuse you or, or frustrate you or raise more questions than they'll answer, but that's okay. You know, we, we read here about how Satan tempted Jesus. There's a, a very real adversary and a tempter that is going after us. You read in another place in the Old Testament in Chronicles how Satan incited David to count the number of people in Israel against God's will. I was reading in my, in my devotions this morning in Judges chapter 9 and there was this, this confrontation between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And, and, and God, it said God sent an evil spirit to, to create animosity between them to punish them. And so the conflict was caused by an evil spirit that had been sent by God to create that conflict. On a different side and on a, the angelic side of things, there's a story about Elisha who is in a city and he's, he's surrounded by the Syrian army because they want to kill him. And he's with a servant and his servant says, Elijah, what are we going to do? And Elijah says, don't worry about it, everything's under control. And he says, no, what are we going to do? And so it says in 2 Kings 6.17, Then Elijah prayed and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of, her- uh, of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was this invisible world that was temporarily made visible for that young man so he could see the whole hosts of God that were intervening on behalf of Elisha. At that particular moment, one other account, in, again in Chronicles, of, uh, uh, of an instance where, where, where God wanted to deal with some kings, and he says, who will go and, and deal with these kings? And uh, finally, a, an evil spirit comes before him and says, well, I will go and entice them. I, I, I'm a lying spirit, and I will go put a lie, and he will believe the lie. And God says, go. And so there's this whole realm of of evil that is taking place all around us and we have to understand it or at least believe it and accept it. And so I think we we just want to launch in and and we're going to go quick, but just bear with me and follow with me. First of all, the first thing I would say right off the top is don't believe everything that you read in Christian literature. As I said before um, when we were talking about the Bible, I believe the Bible is sufficient. We ought not add to it, and we ought not subtract from it. And in this whole world of uh, angelology and demonology, there is so much extra-biblical stuff, which I believe is guff. 
It has no basis in revelation. It has no basis in what God has revealed to us. And so we need to be very, very careful as God's people that we do not go beyond what the Bible says about angels and demons, but that we also go as far as the Bible tells us to go when it comes to angels and demons. Scripture speaks of good angels and bad angels. It speaks of of holy angels, and then as Jude says, it speaks of angels that did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. We'll talk a little bit about this fall that took place in heaven. But originally, God created this whole host of good angels. But then a portion of them, a third of them, it seems from Revelation, chose to follow Satan. Angels are created spiritual beings, created and spiritual That means normally they don't take on bodily forms, although they can do that from time to time, but normally they are spiritual beings and they are created beings. They don't exist on themselves, they they they, they aren't eternal beings, although they will live into eternity, they were created like we were and like the world was. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and through him. And I believe, and, and it's, there's, there's not a lot said in Scripture about this, but I believe that angels were likely created between the first day and the sixth day. And that the fall of angels took place after the sixth day, because up to the sixth day God looked at all he had made and he said, Behold, it is very good. And so angels were part of the original creation. And God created lots of them. Lots of them. In Deuteronomy, or Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 22, it says that when we gather together, do you know that when we gathered together today, we not only worshipped with a whole bunch of people around the world, we not only worshipped with the saints that have already gone ahead of us in our heaven, but we also worshipped with an innumerable host of angels, the Bible says. And so our voices and our hearts and our praise was joined with that of an innumerable host of holy angels who were also worshiping God. Deuteronomy 32, uh, 33, 2 says, He came from ten thousand thousands of his holy ones. Revelation 5.11 says, Many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands. Daniel 7.10 writes about the judgment day of the Ancient of Days. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's a hundred million angels referenced in that one scene. And so there is this innumerable host of angels and demons that inhabit the spiritual realm around us. And I think it's probably important to say also that angels are not really best understood as a race, um, but rather as a company. Because they don't procreate. They don't reproduce. The Bible is very clear that they don't marry and they're not given in marriage. God created them. There are no more. There are no less. The holy angels will live with him forever in eternity. The unholy angels are damned forever and will be cast into the lake of fire. And it's only us as humans who have a representative, which was Adam. And in Adam we all fell, and in Christ, those who put their faith in him are raised. But the angels are responsible individually for the choices that they have made. Holy angels. Uh, Very quickly. Maybe not so quickly. Um, The holy angels are really referred to as the army of the hosts of God. 
And they are described as those who are ever ready to obey and do his will. In, in Psalm 103, verse 20, it says, Bless the Lord, O you his holy angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying his voice. There is this whole host of angels that God has created that, that worship him and that do his will. They, they immediately respond to his command. They are angels that did not sin in the rebellion of, angel, of angels. And in fact, they are called elect angels. Just as there is an elect amongst the company of humankind, there are elect within the body of angels. There are those when God saw all of the angels that he had made, he declared that it was very good, but some of them were the objects of God's electing, preserving love. And as such, they need no deliverance from sin. Scripture does speak about some form of ranking of angels, and we won't go into that. It's very general about it. Scripture does tell us about two kinds of angels. There are cherubim, and uh, probably our most common understanding of cherubim is at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for sin. Cherubim were placed in front of the garden to protect the entrance of the garden so they could not come back in. And seraphim, only one mention of seraphim, and it's in Isaiah chapter 6. And there it's the seraphim who, who day and night cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. As we think about angels too, there are only two ever named in Scripture. And I believe we ought never got be beyond that then. And I've read enough books on angels to see they've got names for every one of them. I mean, where do you get that from? All we have named is Michael the archangel and Gabriel the angel of God. Michael is the one who laid, led the hosts of heaven against um, Satan and his forces. Gabriel is the one that we, we, we refer to in Luke chapter 1 when he, he appeared to Zechariah and told him that his prayers had been answered. And so there's, uh, but what do angels do? And I'm just going to throw these quickly so that we have an understanding in our head of what angels do. Clearly, angels worship God. And they are examples of us about what it means to worship God. They rejoice in His works. They execute His will without question. They, it, it, Daniel seems to say that angels are involved in guiding the affairs of this world. What is it that causes leaders to make one decision and not another? What is it that causes uh, uh, something to happen in this country wins a battle and another country loses the battle? In part, it's this whole heavenly realm in which God is using angels to bring this world to its proper conclusion. They watch over the interest of particular churches. It says, it talks about in Scripture how they assist and protect believers, how they punish God's enemies, how they are ministering spirits. They, 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 they are used by God in bringing about an answers to prayer. They are used by God to bring warnings and announcements to us. They give encouragement. They provide protection. They give guidance. They provide deliverance. They care for believers at the moment of death. I, I've thought of this quite often, and, uh, and I, it's such an encouragement to me and such a, a comforting thought. And it basically is rooted in that parable in Luke chapter 16. And when, when, when the beggar died, it says the angels came along and carried him to the bosom of Abraham. You might die alone physically, but you will never die alone if you're a child of God because his angels will come along and they will carry you into heaven. They are not to be worshipped. 
Colossians clearly tells us, and I think in our culture today, we're close in some senses and in some churches and among some circles to worshiping angels. But the Bible is very clear that we are not to be disqualified by the worship of angels. They are not to be sought after. They are not to be prayed to. They observe our, our obedience and our disobedience. They are sent by God to minister to us and encourage us. And there are time after time in Scripture where we see God sending His angels to encourage His people, to feed His people, to comfort His people. Some think that we have a specific guardian angel. I don't think that we do. I think rather, and I think it's even more encouraging, that Christians enjoy the guardianship of the angels as a whole. That God sends His angels out to protect us and preserve us and encourage us. And as Psalm 91.11 says, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. I'm sure that if we had time this morning, there would be numerous people here who could describe a personal experience of how they understood that God had sent an angel before them or after them or beside them to protect them, to guard them, or to preserve them. God's angels still do that today. My hope in just talking about angels was, was to help us realize that they have a place in this world. They have an existence all around us. They are here to worship God as we worship God. They are ministering servants of God to minister to us and to protect us and encourage us and guide us. And I don't understand this verse at all, but Paul says in Corinthians chapter 6 that we will one day judge the angels. I don't understand that. I have some thoughts about that. But they are created beings in God's creation that we worship and work with to bring about the kingdom of God. Fallen angels. Fallen angels, we sometimes refer to them as demons. They are the army of Satan. They are the forces of darkness whose ambition it is to destroy the works of God. Unlike the elect angels of 1 Timothy, Jude tells us that they are angels that sinned. They did not keep their first estate. There was a rebellion in heaven, and I, I'm not exactly sure what passages like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are referring to. I know what they refer to, but I don't know if they can be applied to Satan himself and his fall. But in Revelations chapter 12, we have a very clear, unmistakable description of the battle that took place in heaven. And in, Galatia, or in Revelations chapter 3 verse 4, we read how Satan fell and swept with his tail a third of the stars, which I believe is a reference to a third of the angels went into rebellion with Satan. And Revelation 12 goes on to say, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And this should cause us to rejoice. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil, the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and the angels were thrown down with him. He was kicked out. He was booted out. He was cast out. He was thrown out, never ever again to enter the presence of God in heaven. A decisive battle in heaven was won. There is no redemption for fallen angels. I don't understand that either, but the scripture seems to be clear that there is no redemption for them. There is no salvation provided for them. They were either the elect angels who will serve God into eternity, or they were fallen angels who were cast into the fiery pit which God had prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Demons are those who ceaselessly strive to deflect God's will and oppose God. They oppose man in their allegiances to Satan and they do his bidding. Just some random verses that I picked out. Not random because I believe God put them in my head so that we would have them this morning. But we, in Luke chapter 18 or 13, we, talk, we read about that woman there who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And then very late, about, about three phrases later, it says Satan had bound her for 18 years. Acts chapter 10, 38 tells about how, how Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth, went about in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it says that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. 1 Thessalonians tells us that Paul was hindered by Satan from coming to them. 1 Timothy 4.1, and this ought to cause us all to, to put on our discernment cap, but 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the last times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There are those that, that are influenced even in, 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 in the church by deceitful spirits and by the doctrines of demons. And I could tell you some of the people who I believe promote these teachings that infect the people of God and cause them to veer away from the faith. And so demons and evil spirits are at work binding, oppressing, possessing, de deceiving the people of God and people in this world. And unlike the children of God who have an escort of angels into the presence of God when they die, it's a terrifying scripture in Isaiah 14, 9, which says, Shoal from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. You think there's a, a joyful reception when you come into heaven? There is a terrifying reception if you die and end up in hell. We need to understand this revelation seriously, loved ones. We need to understand that there is a spiritual battle being waged around us. We need to understand that everything that we see is not everything that we see. We need to understand that behind the scene is a world of the unseen. That there is a battle that we are engaged in. There is a spiritual host that is committed to our destruction and it is led by Satan. Satan is the only fallen angel ever mentioned in Scripture. He seems to be more often described than named he is called Satan, our adversary. He is the devil, a slanderer. He is Apollyon, the destroyer. He is Belial, the worthless and the wicked one. He is the father of lies. He is the master of disguises. Corinthians tells us he even disguises himself as an angel of light. Appears to be good. Appears to be beautiful. Appears to have our best interest in life, in, 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 in light. But behind him is the fullness and the full extent of evil and wickedness. He is the ancient serpent, the dragon, a roaring lion, an accuser, persecutor of the church. His chief characteristics are malice and cunning and hostility, and he's a deceiver. And do you, under, do you understand why this world is in such a mess it's in? You read on in Revelations chapter 12, and it says, uh, in Revelations chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O you in heaven, and you who dwell there, for Satan has been cast down. Heaven is rejoicing because the presence of evil is vanquished from it. 
But then it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. That's why this world is in such a mess. That's why there is so much rampant wickedness and evil. That is why there is so much hatred around us. Because the devil has been cast down to this earth because he knows his time is short. He knows that he, he only has a limited opportunity to cause destruction. And so he presents himself as an angel of light. So he, he, he comes and he snatches the word of God from our heart before it ever has an opportunity to grow. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 I think is a, a passage that reminds us of the accusing work of, this, uh, of Satan. And this is amazing. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Here is Joshua, the high priest, doing the work of the Lord in the temple of the Lord. And Satan, standing at his right hand, accusing him. Have you ever had that? Teaching a Sunday school lesson, you're in prayer, and all of a sudden you have the, the lies and the accusations of the deceiver whispering in your ear. We sang about that. Um, Satan tempts me to despair. He, he, he tempts me to look at the guilt within. He's this accuser. He no longer accuses us before God, but he accuses us day in and day out in our hearts and lives. He, he sets snares for us. He looks for opportunities to trap us up. And so we need to give the proper account and understanding of Satan in this world. I think the first thing that I would say, and I'm, I'm almost done. Satan is a created being. Understand that. He is a created being. He is not independent. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He has been overthrown. He has been defeated. He has been cast down. He is bound. He can never go beyond the limits that God sets for him ever in any situation. You read Job and you get a, a, a very clear understanding of that, that, that God said you can do this and no more. You can do this and no more. You can do this and no more. In Revelation, it talks very clearly how God gave Satan the authority and the power that he had and no more. So he's a defeated foe. He is a created being. He can only do what God ever allows him to do. He is a defeated enemy. We talked about that. And there's one verse that I, I want to read um, in Colossians which, talks, which reminds us of this, um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And it says there, after Jesus died on the cross, after he nailed our sins on the cross, after he canceled the record of debt that stood against us, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. He is a defeated foe, loved ones. He is done. He is thrown out. He is cast out. He is done. He's also, though, one that we can resist. Scripture says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you hit those difficult times in your life? When you hit those temptations that you think you're never going to make it through? Do you believe that if you stand up to him, if you say, Satan, Satan I am a child of God, Satan, I am standing on this promise of God. Satan, get lost. If we resist him, he will flee from us. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. In other words, take this stuff seriously. Your adversary kind of paints a picture. The devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Stand on the promises. Claim the word of God. How did, def- how did Jesus respond to Satan when he tempted him in the wilderness? Every time with the word of God. So resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6 tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As we put on the helmet of salvation, as we put on the breastplate of righteousness, as we take up the sword of the Spirit, as we shod our feet with the gospel of peace, we stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And I love this last verse, and this is where we end this morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. When you find yourself in the thick of the battle, when you find yourself um, almost feeling your knees starting to shake and wondering if you can make it another day, the grace or the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love that. The God of peace. What a con- The God of peace. The God of shalom, the God of wellness in every conceivable way, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. John Calvin ended one of his sermons with this prayer, and I end with it as well. Grant, Almighty God, that as you are graciously pleased daily to set before us your sure and certain will, We may open our eyes and ears and raise all our thoughts to that which not only reveals to us what is right, but also confirms us in a sound mind, so that we may go on in the course of true religion and never turn aside whatever Satan and his ministers may devise against us, but that we may stand firm and persevere until having finished our warfare, we shall at length come into thy blessed rest, which thou hast prepared in heaven by Jesus Christ. Amen.